Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, September the 28th. In a moment, we'll be hearing about an important research article in this week's issue dated September the 29th to October the 5th. This shows how the H5N1 avian flu virus can infect human tissue beyond the lungs. We'll be speaking to the lead author of the study on the line from Beijing in China. Before that, I'm joined by our North American senior editor, Faith McClellan, on the line from New York. Faith, you've penned the long leader this week, and this concerns a class of anti-hyperglycemic drugs linked to a research article in this week's issue and a couple of comments as well. But more broadly, Faith, it's also talking about the use of surrogate endpoints in clinical research. What was the peg for this editorial? Well, Richard, there was a storm of controversy that started in the U.S. a few months ago over this particular class of drugs, the thiazolidine dions. Let's call them the glitazones from now on. It's much easier. There was a meta-analysis published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Stephen Nissen from the Cleveland Clinic and one of his colleagues that suggested that there were untoward cardiovascular events occurring with one of these glitazones, rosy glitazone. This led to an enormous number of reactions. Uh, there was a congressional hearing, there was an FDA hearing, and lots of work in the scientific community to try to replicate these findings and determine whether or not this meta-analysis, in fact, showed a clear risk of cardiovascular side effects with this particular class of drugs. So in this week's issue, we are publishing an article by Rodrigo Lego, which shows that although there is apparent higher risk of congestive heart failure with patients who are given this drug, patients with either pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, that this particular kind of congestive heart failure, if you will, is not associated with a higher risk of death. This gets us to the point uh, of concern about the use of surrogate markers, doesn't it, in clinical research, because drug companies presumably are quite pleased to demonstrate efficacy within a trial, but patients and physicians, obviously, as well, probably want something more meaningful. Well, the question is, what is the important question to ask? We have two comments in the issue as well that talk about whether or not control of blood glucose alone is the most important outcome for drugs that are used in the treatment of diabetes. It would appear that there are other outcomes that are much more important, like cardiovascular events, and that these are the ones not particularly well studied in trials especially after the drug comes on the market. So what we've argued is that we need much better post-marketing data from the uh, widespread use of these drugs, what actually are the risks and the side effects and other outcomes besides the control of blood glucose. One of our commentators argues that the control of blood glucose while an important feature of diabetes control, is not necessarily the outcome that is most important to patients who are much more interested in the complications of diabetes, quality of life, whether or not these drugs will have an effect on how long they live, and so forth. So he is calling for more attention to what he calls patient-important outcomes. But presumably, the issue is when conducting randomized trials, there's only so much time and there's only so much of a window you have during the trial phase before a drug goes onto the market. So the key thing, as you say, post-marketing-wise, you need a greater window 
to actually show the true implications of the use of the drug. And companies have been particularly bad, and uh, quite frankly, regulatory agencies have also been particularly bad in enforcing that these post-marketing studies must be done and must be done in a timely fashion. There's a lot of work to do on all sides, uh, on the design of trials, on drug companies' responsibilities after the drugs come to market, and on the regulatory agencies to ensure that patient-important outcome data uh, really comes to the forefront in a a very thoroughly evaluated and rigorous fashion. Faith on the line from New York, thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. As mentioned earlier, this week we publish an important research article contributing to our knowledge of the H5N1 avian flu virus. Earlier I spoke to the lead author of the study, Professor Zhang Gu from Beijing University in China. Professor Gu, you're the author of an important study looking at H5N1 in this week's issue of The Lancet. Before we talk about the current study, can you just remind us what previous research up until now has actually told us about the way the H5N1 virus attacks human body tissue? Previously, uh, there has been only uh, limited information on this regard. There has been only eight autopsies performed on uh, patients who died of uh, avian influenza. Previously, we know that this virus uh, can infect virus in the lung, but mostly in deeper part of the lung and cause pneumonia and respiratory failure and death. But in animals, we know it infects the brain and the digestive tract as well. We also know that uh, this particular virus, uh, H5N1, infects human cells through specific receptors. For even influenza, the receptor uh, in human is called salic acid, up to three galactose, and the distribution of this receptor has been mapped uh, throughout the body. And in terms of the current study, this basically are the autopsy results of two individuals who died, a man and a pregnant woman. Can you just outline the history of these two studies? Were they related, unrelated? What characteristics were there? Both patients uh, occurred in China in late uh, 2005. They are unrelated cases. And uh, the first one is a lady of 24 years old who uh, was pregnant at the time of, of diagnosis. Uh, who was in, in Anhui province, is, is inland province. She handled uh, sick and bad birth about three to ten days before onset of the symptoms. Actually, she ate some of the birds, cooked and ate them a few times. You know, then uh, later on, she developed uh, symptoms of high fever and uh, respiratory tract infection. And uh, then uh, she was admitted to the hospital and uh, on x-ray, it had a patchy um, infiltration and uh, rapidly deteriorating. Then uh, she was treated with corticosteroids and antibiotics, and she died nine days quickly in hospital, nine days after the onset of, of, of symptoms, and uh, with the fetus inside her. So that's the first case. It had a relatively short course of the disease. This is a unique case because this is the only one that... Uh, we know that died uh, with, a, with, with a pregnancy, four months pregnancy. The second case was a 34-year-old male who also handled a sick birth a few days uh, before onset of the symptoms. Then she developed, developed a similar symptoms with high fever and uh, respiratory tract infection. He was treated 
with antiviral treatment and, and corticosteroid, but the symptoms were not uh, recovered, was not improved. And he died 27 days after onset of the symptoms. Also, he was intubated and, and died with respiratory failure. We'll talk about the interesting pathological findings in a moment, but just very briefly, can you just outline the, the way you did the genetic analysis, presumably in conventional ways, as with previous H5N1 cases? Yes. So this, both cases was diagnosed as uh, even flu uh, by the Chinese CDC uh, shortly after the onset of the symptoms. They were uh, diagnosed uh, with the technique of RT-PCR uh, to amplify the uh, genomic sequence of the virus. And then uh, they were also performed viral culture and sequencing and identified the H5N1 uh, strains in both of them. So the, the diagnosis was established clinically. Then after the autopsy, uh, we collected extensive tissue samples we performed autopsy at two different levels. First, uh, we used immunohistochemistry with uh, monoclonal antibodies against different parts of the virus. Uh, one is against HA, the, the hemoglutinin, and another against MP, is a nucleoprotein. And both give identical results, indicating uh, the proteins and, or the antigens of the virus present in uh, specific cell types. This was confirmed uh, with another technique uh, called in situ hybridization. We uh, produced the probes, uh, specific probes against HA and MP and hybridized to the tissue section and confirmed uh, that certain cell types was actually uh, contain uh, the nucleotide sequence uh, of H5N1. Then uh, on those tissue sections, we performed double labeling with different cell markers. So we identified the different cell types that was uh, actually infected by the virus. Those cells contain viral protein, antigen, and also the, the nucleotide of those virus. We extracted the RNA uh, from uh, the tissue sample of different parts. Then we performed RT-PCR, real-time PCR, and another t technique called NASPA. And all those techniques confirm the presence of the virus in different uh, organ tissue samples that we collected. So the immunohistochemistry and insecto hybridization localized uh, those proteins to specific cell types. And RT-PCR, real-time PCR, NASPA uh, detected, uh, confirmed the presence of those uh, virus sequences uh, in the specific cell types tissue samples. Let's talk specifically about the, the results really at the heart of, of this very interesting analysis and that is the types of body tissue where you were able to detect either the virus antigens or part of the ge genomic sequence of the virus. Can you comment on that because this is the new finding isn't it? So first of all we uh, confirmed that the lung was uh, infected so what was new was that we uh, uh, specifically localized uh, the cell types that was infected by the virus in the lung, uh, mostly the type 2 epithelial cells. And what was really new was that uh, we detected the epithelial cells in the trachea. Both the ciliated and non-ciliated epithelial cells in the trachea was actually positive for, bo for both uh, immunostaining and insidio hybridization, indicating those cells was also infected. So uh, the significance of this was that uh, previously, uh, people thought the trachea was not infected, but only 
the deeper part of the lung was infected. People have been using this as an explanation for uh, uh, the uh, a pandemic of uh, even flu has not occurred because the upper respiratory tract was not infected. But here we seen uh, we have seen clearly that uh, the epithelial cells of the trachea was also infected. Also, uh, interestingly, uh, we found the neurons uh, in the brain uh, was infected uh, quite extensively, but not the glial cells, but only in the neurons. So this was new, and uh, it might uh, explain uh, some of the neurological symptoms seen in uh, bird flu patients. In addition, uh, we found certain T lymphocytes was positive for both the nucleotide sequence and the protein antigens. Also, in the pregnant case, uh, in the placenta, we uh, performed uh, quite careful analysis. We found the macrophages, uh, which is called um, half-bower cells in the placenta, was positive. And also, the cytotrophoblast in the placenta was positive. In addition, in the fetus, uh, we found the fetus lung was, in fact, quite extensively infected by the virus. So there's a lot of positive cells in the lung. In the poofer cells of the liver, um, was also positive. Also, certain uh, circulating uh, monocytes that is in within the chamber of the heart of the fetus contained uh, the positivity. This clearly indicates that the virus was able to pass through the placental barrier and infect the fetus. What was uh, quite interesting was that the fetus lung actually uh, looks morpholo morphologically normal, but there's a lot of cells uh, contain the virus. But in adult lung, in the mother, uh, the pathology was very extensive. The damage was very extensive, but only limited cells was infected by the virus. We thought this could be an indication to the pathogenesis that uh, it most likely is caused by an overreaction of the immune system, or people call it a cytokine storm. We thought that the fetus, uh, because the fetus has a naive immune system, so uh, the fetus were not able to mount an uh, overwhelming immune reaction. Therefore, the lung of the fetus had minor damages. So uh, those are the new observations. What are the implications, do you think, of these findings? Is this now a worrying step forward, if you like, of the progress of, of H5N1? Because it's, the implication is that vertical transmission from human to human is, is, is now a reality. I think we can say with confidence that the virus is able to pass through the placenta and to be uh, transmitted vertically from mother to fetus. As we know, the fetus is a different individual. Therefore, uh, from one aspect, we can say that uh, the human-to-human -human transmission has been confirmed. But this does not mean that um, after birth, the human-to-human -human transmission has occurred. That has not been reported, although there has been cases uh, highly suggestive of human-to-human -human transmission to a limited degree. What do you think are the public health implications? Clearly, we have the autopsy results of two individuals here. There's a, a number of uh, implications. Uh, first of all, the possibility of uh, transmitting the virus from mother to fetus uh, is a possibility. Therefore, if the mother is infected and pregnant, so uh, the physician need to consider the infection of the, the fetus. In China, we had another case of pregnancy and uh, the fetus was uh, spontaneously aborted, then the mother was recovered right away. 
So this was also another interesting case that's not been reported. So this uh, possibility should be considered also uh, when people deliver the baby and uh, so the transmission from uh, the mother and the blood to the uh, physicians and the health care workers should also be considered. Other implications from uh, those observations include that the respiratory tract was infected not only uh, in the lungs, but also in the upper part of the respiratory tract. Therefore, respiratory, uh, respiratory tract uh, infection uh, is also quite probable. We also found uh, the sequence of the nucleotide in the digestive tract. These tell us that um, the transmission from stools well, through the digestive tract may also be a possibility, so uh, precautions should be taken to prevent this route of infection. And also we found a virus in T lymphocytes and other part of the body. Therefore, the infection through body fluid exchange or contact may also be a possibility, for example, through blood transfusion, etc. Although there was no report of such transmissions, but from what we've seen in autopsy and the location of the virus, those above uh, possibilities of transmission should also be um, bear in mind uh, when dealing with uh, suspected uh, even influenza-infected patients. Professor Gu, it's a fascinating read, and clearly the implications are worrying. But I suppose next steps, as you say, we just need to be more aware of the potential for spread now, as you've just outlined. Yeah, absolutely. This study also uh, suggests that we uh, do not know much about pathogenesis of this uh, new disease, and the more study need to be done, particularly uh, thorough autopsies and more molecular biological studies. Professor Gu on the line from Beijing, thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much, Richard. Professor Zhang Gu from Beijing University in China concluding this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.